well, well, Maya's been going through a big Korean soap opera uh, phase. Okay. One of them was about like an heiress who, in a freak paragliding accident, <laughs> ends up in North Korea. Uh, and she falls into the arms of a hot North Korean soldier. <laughs> oh, wow. And uh, romance ensues. But there are all sorts of obstacles along the way, as you might imagine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, some quite obvious ones, as well as matters of the heart. Yeah, like... <laughs> I think it was 18 episodes in the series. And each episode is 90 minutes long. So I just want to... I just want to put across how much time in my life was committed to this. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. Is it anything like South Korean news? Like, kabow, bang! Yeah, yeah, all the, like, zany <laughs> animation. There is a moment, not quite at the end of each episode, but there's a, a six-minute slow-motion montage recap of the episode <laughs> in the episode. You get, like, five minutes just to gossip about what's happened. Ah, you know, whilst it's being sort of recapped in slow-mo with, with wow. a schmaltzy Korean love song, <laughs> you can discuss what you've just seen. Oh my God, they, oh, he came and got her in the market when she was all scared. You know, and then he comes back and then it's like, okay, here's some more storyline. It's an odd structure. I've never seen that before. That must be a Korean thing. I don't know. It's truly, the Far East is innovating in, in all fields at the moment. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 42 of Connected and Disaffected, a podcast about technology and the future of politics. I'm Raj Thomas, joining me I have Rowan Emsley. Hey everybody. And Warren Peace. Hey everyone. So this week we're going to be talking about a new kind of, uh, let's say, media funding ecosystem. So print legacy publications, you know, the big names, the New York Times, the Guardian, etc. Um, needless to say, the dawn of the internet was not favorable for their previously uh, near monopoly on such things as classified ads and uh, people's eyeballs um, on a daily basis. Uh, Google and Facebook and the other large uh, internet companies are now stepping in to fill this gap, and that has left them with a uh, serious problem around their revenue streams. And this episode is going to be about the effect of that on the uh, quality of media and the room for people with lots of money, like Google, for example, to start swaying um, previously huge institutions in their favor. And to talk about this, we have an interview with Alexander Fanta, no relation, uh, who is a journalist. He's co-author of a study, Google the Media Patron, which is published by the Otto Brenner Foundation in Germany. And we spoke to him about his investigative work and uh, what Google is doing to sway news media both at home and abroad. Over to Alex. So my name is Alexander Fanta. I'm a tech journalist based in Brussels, and I recently took some leave of my regular job to do a study on how Google finances journalism. And we also looked into the broader context of how tech companies are interfacing with journalism and using journalism for their own ends. I've seen these kind of headlines for years and years, right? It's like, oh, Google gives a bunch of money to media companies to you know, prop up the beleaguered media industry. But I guess I'd never really thought about it as an entire package. It was just like a drip feed of Google giving out money to media companies. So how much has they, have they given and since when? I think few people have looked at um, the entirety of it. 
nobody really discusses this outside of the, the news industry. But um, we um, looked at the figures and we, we found that Google has given more than 200 million euros to the European news industry alone over the past seven years. We also looked quite specifically at who they gave that money to. Um, the truth is, when you look at the, the numbers, most of the money went to large, well-established publishing houses. Um, the organizations that got most of the money were older than 20 years, commercial publishers, usually Western European, heavily skewed towards Western Europe. And it's helped organizations like the Financial Times and The Guardian, uh, Reuters, pay for their new paywalls, for their new podcast projects, for all kinds of, of innovation that they probably should have done earlier anyway. Um, so Google helped all the established publishing companies catch up to the digital age. So why, why, why are Google doing this? It's quite a lot of money. I mean, not for Google, but um, nonetheless, it's pretty significant giving. What, what's in it for them? I think there's one image that really captures what this was about. The first time Google financed um, European journalism on a broader scale was when they pledged money to French publishers. And what was the reason they did that? Why did they suddenly promise 60 million euros to French publishers in a formal signing ceremony where the CEO of Google, Eric Schmidt, then met then French president Francois Hollande? The, the reason they did it, because France was at the time considering a tax on digital advertising that would have cost Google heavily by all estimates. And the French publishing industry was pushing for that tax because they were saying, we are losing revenue while there's one advertising company on the net uh, monopolizing the digital ad space and, and, and raking in revenue, and that's Google. And so um, what happened was is that Google said, told the French publishers, um, you don't have to create this newfangled tax of which you won't know if it actually works, but we will just give you the money to finance the innovation that you need. And um, this kind of voluntary deal between the publishing industry and, and Google and, it's, and the tech companies, that has been a template for everything that happened later on. And it, uh, we can even still see the effects now with the outcome of the copyright reform and other things. So it's a... Uh part of a lobbying effort. I think it's it's the most one of the most large scale efforts to lobby a stakeholder, to lobby the fourth estate. We all know what the massive outsized political influence on the publishing industry is because they have this um, gigantic mouthpiece. And this is a very intricate form of lobbying when you don't go directly to the politicians, but you go to the publishing industry first because you know they are talking to the politicians. You would imagine that the media industry, particularly, you know, big, long established uh, outlets are not um, not blind to this, you know, what, what, is their, what is their take on it? How do they justify uh, taking all that money? I, I think the publishing industry is a bit confused right now. They are in a difficult situation. They're still reeling from the shock of, of no longer having the, you know, the solid revenue from, from print publishing that you, they used to have. And so they, I think they're in a bit of an identity crisis. And as part of that identity crisis, all the way, Google was there and uh, it held the publisher's hand, it financed their conferences. Um, Google was, was present and was a, um, at least talking to the people in the publishing industry when other companies such as Facebook weren't. Right now, some people in the publishing industry are starting to reevaluate it. So last week, um, the most powerful figure in German publishing, Matthias Döpfner, the uh, head of uh, Axel Springer Publishing House, um, wrote an open letter to uh, Commission President von der Leyen, conveniently in his own paper. And in that letter, he said there should be no tracking on the net. Um, we should all keep control of our personal data. 
And um, I, was, I, I spoke to a Springer lobbyist just after that, and I asked him, it's crazy because when I go to your website to read that very letter, I'm being tracked um, by cookies, and, and some of that data is, ends up, I don't, I don't even know. I have no way of knowing where the data ends up. And he says, well, um, what we meant is we meant Google must stop tracking people. We, we, we will still keep tracking people. But, um, so in, in essence, the industry is still trying to work out that whether this surveillance-based business model can be made workable for them while they can at the same time spoil the party for Google and, and Facebook and, and Amazon and Apple and whoever is just joint digital advertising. Right. So it's like a, an antitrust uh, approach to digital advertising. It's like, well, it's good, but not if Google and Facebook get all of the money. I think when you look at this uh, weird relationship, this weird psychodynamic between the ad industry and the tech industry and the, and the publishing uh, houses, you realize nobody has really worked this out. Nobody really knows what a sustainable business model on the net is. The only people to really ha seem to have worked it out are Google uh, and, and a couple of other companies that are um, in this ad space. I, I'm not sure the answer is to emulate them, but rather offer an alternative business model that doesn't, uh, is not premised on, on, on sur surveillance of users because we all know that uh, Google is a lot better at this business than any publishing house in Germany or France uh, or anywhere else would be. Yeah, it's funny that you say maybe starting to kind of push back against Google on this stuff. But um, I was thinking when I was looking at the the results, like it's definitely true that Google gets less of a bad rap than the other big tech companies. Like Facebook gets a lot of the, you know, takes a lot of the flack for just like the general ills of the digital ecosystem. Like they're kind of the target basically for, for any story, even though Google is normally doing exactly the same things or did it first and is doing it on a larger scale very often, um, they don't seem to get attacked as much. Do you think that is uh, related to the, all this funding? There's a good survey on, on, on the question of whom the publishers trust most. The outcome of the survey is, is basically um, that, that Google is the most um, trusted in the publishing industry among publishers. And the interesting bit is that the survey was done um, by the uh, Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism in Oxford, uh, with money from Google. So they uh, receive 1.3 million pounds every year from Google um, for the very purpose of doing surveys on the mood in the news industry, on innovation, on um, you know, what kind of problems uh, and challenges the publishers are, are facing at the moment. And uh, Google has been very clever in giving money not only to publishers, but also to this kind of ecosystem of, of, of researchers and you know, NGOs that are uh, somehow involved with press freedom, and they have been really good at kind of saying, we are your friend. And they've been present at all these um, industry conferences and, and have been reliable in a way that, that Facebook hasn't. Hmm. Yeah, so there's like this openness. And I, I see it, you know, I work for an NGO now and Google gives out ad grants to virtually any NGO that asks for it as well. And they're just like, yeah, here, it's free, 10,000 a month, you know, just take it in ads. But it does, of course, mean that all those NGOs start using their ad platform uh, so it's pretty it's pretty cunning uh, approach. You know, you, you've been a journalist for uh, a long time. Have you seen people pushing back? Or, you know, editors saying, "Oh, maybe we shouldn't look into this," or, or anything explicit like that, or is it just a, a blind spot? So we found no evidence whatsoever. Um, so we, for the study, we spoke with a couple of German um, tech journalists. We, we found no evidence whatsoever that Google is in any way interfering editorially with the media they are funding. However, it is, it is rather curious to see that um, this very relationship 
that Google has uh, with with the publishing industry is is almost you know it's almost not discussed. And when our study came out, I we had some interest, and there was some reporting you know from the public broadcaster who doesn't take Google money, um, from a couple of, of of large newspapers who don't take Google money. There was surprisingly little interest from those who do, and um, I thought that was quite telling. So the publishing industry is in a way a bit complicit uh, with the with the business model of these tech companies because they still help Google and Facebook and other companies do a lot of their tracking on their websites um, and they earn money from that from that and so this kind of this, this kind of relationship between the publishing industry and the tech companies is rarely discussed in the news media itself do you think that this uh, kind of Google lobbying model is going to change do you think um, I mean it seems like they're they're going beyond you know Europe to a large extent I remember when I was living in East Africa there was quite a lot of this talk about funding, you know, independent press and all that kind of stuff. How, how big is the scope of this, do you think? I think, I think that the, the focus, by and large, um, still is uh, Europe and America um, and now Australia, because that is where Google feels it has political problems that can be addressed by funding the publishers. So right, right now, um, or just recently in France, the publishers announced that they have a deal with Google ostensibly has to do do with the copyright directive and France being the first country to implement it. Google um, agreed to pay a certain licensing fee to publishers. But the funny thing is Google, in the announcement they made, they didn't explicitly say it was for the copyright directives. They they were saying, you know, this has also to do with we get some exclusive content from the publishers for um, Google uh, News Showcase, a new product they have. So again, they're trying to leverage this to, 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 you know, work a system on this somehow and saying, um, we, um, what we pay, we pay voluntarily and we get something in return rather than saying we're just obliged to pay some kind of tax. And this is Google's strategy that they are also will now try to, to work out in Australia where they have um, big problems because there is a new system also to force Google to pay license fees and they will do this everywhere else. Um, at the same time, and this is also something we looked at and I think it's still kind of curious, is this whole thing of what is Google doing in these countries, in authoritarian countries, in, in, in countries of the global south, where they don't have these kind of political problems. And still they're giving money. And we looked at, at two examples that I, I still find puzzling myself, um, absolutely strange. So they were giving money to a media in Rwanda that was close to the government, close to President Paul Kagame, who is an authoritarian strongman. Uh, and this pro-government media does not have a great rep among human rights advocates because it attacks human rights advocates. And so Google is, is helping that this newspaper in Rwanda, um, the, the New Times, to um, make more effort with its community, funds that project. I, I still don't understand why Google is funding this weird newspaper in Rwanda. They also did the same with the newspaper in the United Arab Emirates, also a country that is not doing great in press freedom. Also here, it is a pro-government mouthpiece. It, it has to be said that Google is funding. So why is doing Google something that certainly isn't a benefit for press freedom in these countries? got no meaningful answer from the company and I wish somebody would ask them that at a press conference where the, some executive is on the stage but of course we all know from these tech companies they don't exactly like to their CEOs or their responsible important managers to go on stage where they have to answer unscripted questions from journalists that's why they almost never do. What, what is being done to sort of counteract any of this uh, lobbying stuff do you see anything from the EU that is going to make this a less effective uh, technique because it just seems like it's very effective even there are some odd examples of it perhaps there are you know business reasons there that aren't clear at this stage but uh, it does seem like it's basically been a very good strategy for them so is anything going to stop that 
I mean, the, the EU is uh, making some promising signs at the moment. So um, competition authorities have started looking into the ad tech ecosystem. They're specifically looking at Google and, and Facebook to see if they have, you know, bent the system in their favor, which uh, inadvertently would also hurt publishers. The Digital Services Act, Digital Markets Act um, that the European Union proposed only in December will have some provisions on ad transparency, which would also mean that uh, a company that, that sells advertising via Google marketplaces or buys advertising would have more information about what, what is the price at the end of the line, uh, how much does Google take, that kind of thing. So that, that would certainly be helpful in some ways. At the same time, um, the, it's, it's kind of a measure flanking the European Democracy Action Plan. The Commission said he would um, you know, set up a fund, you know, maybe a couple of dozen million euros, that would help publishers find new business models. We still don't know a lot about that fund, but it is set to launch this year. So that, that is important. That's, that's it's not a bad step. And now, of course, on the Digital Services Act, Digital Markets Act, you have a group of MEPs in the parliament who are saying, hey, why don't we ban personalized targeted advertising altogether? And just, um, you know, kind of take the floor out of the business model of these companies. And wouldn't that be a win for the publishing industry? And I think that is, that is an argument that still is to be had that is very interesting at the moment. But uh, in the short run, I think Google will con continue their lobbying vis-a-vis -vis the publishers and they will be successful with it because very few other people are doing much about addressing the funding shortfall that these publishers have. Well, yeah, difficult to see a way out. You know, either some sort of legislative action happens or the media industry figures out a way to fund itself, you know. Neither of those things seem very likely at this juncture. Where can people find you and follow you and all that? Good stuff. So um, I write for netspolitik.org, um, which is mainly German language, but we're translating more and more stuff into English. You can also find an English version of my study on the website of Otto Brenner Foundation in Germany. My name is Alexander Fanta, conveniently spelled like the drink. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to, I should probably distance myself from that claim for legal reasons, because as you know, Fanta is a product of the Coca-Cola uh, yes. company. So I'm messing with big tech already. I don't need them on my case as well. <laughs> All right. Thanks for coming on. Great to speak to you, Rowan. So that was uh, Alex Fanta there talking about his work uh, investigating Google funding of media organizations. He can be found on Twitter at FantaAlex with two X's. Um, we'll obviously include links to his work at the end of the show. Um, but, you know, I'm interested to see, like, obviously this interview focuses very heavily on Google, but I think this is by no means limited to just that company. Yeah, there's uh, there's been a lot of talk about this um, in the last, couple of years but particularly at the moment there's a, a case going on in Australia about the collapse of local news right so often mm -hmm. when you see these uh, headlines about the, the media industry being in big trouble it's not typically the biggest um, dominoes that have fallen because they found other ways to get funding um, they have sometimes a big trust behind them like the guardian or they have other assets that they can sell off you know they're big big companies that have been around for a long time they're a little bit more robust but often it's these um small local or regional outlets that uh don't have that kind of buffer where they can try and figure out a new revenue stream and they've been collapsing all over the place um used to be a website called newspaper death watch that just tallied these up like oh the michigan herald or whatever has closed down like just day after day after day after day Thousands of outlets have closed down. And there's a big case uh, in Australia at the moment about this um, and how actually in Australia, the big tech giants have been stepping in to fund local journalism specifically and how th there are some concerns 
as you might understand from the policymakers about uh, what that does to the coverage um, and whether or not uh, perhaps there should be public funding uh, for these outlets because if we all agree that they're useful things to have, um, which I think we're sort of all coming around to, it's not good to just have the big outlets at the top, then can we just outsource the funding of those to often the companies that are being investigated by those outlets? So uh, you, you might see this all over the place, but it's important to say, basically, this playbook from Google, whilst um, perhaps the biggest, is not better by far from being alone. I was going to say a um, thing that I remember watching, it was actually around radio, but I've seen it also happening as well in local news here in the UK, is the massive kind of conglomeration as well. You know, basically of newspapers or radio stations or whatever want to survive. They just become clones owned by kind of a single kind of national um, overseer and of course you end up actually with local news which people think represents kind of local views actually being run by an entity that might be pushing you know a certain agenda usually with like a fair amount of money behind it you just end up with hom homogeneity which is a problem in itself kind of culturally but also you can end up with you know if you watch some of the kind of local news in america it's quite uh shocking uh some of the kind of editorial bylines and that kind of thing in some of the stuff is it, it would make even like some of fox news's stuff seem pretty <laughs> chill when you get this kind of underfunding as we're touching on here you just end up big money you know fills fills that space sees an opportunity yeah and there's sort of two two flavors of that right like one is a big thing i mean in the uk like a lot of local um, outlets have been bought up by these conglomerates and they are run kind of centrally by one team who is editing uh, the paper in plymouth the paper in bath the paper in bristol the paper in Exeter, you know, it's all being run by one team, really, really small team. And so the quality control goes down, obviously. The amount of actual reporting goes down, of course. The uh, number of editors often are the ones, you know, really leave because they're the ones who are more expensive to keep. Um, so you have a hollowing out of the quality of the service. But then you have this other side, which is what all of the, the big media outlets that kind of are too big to fail, sort of, mm. they find the money somewhere else. Right, so mm -hmm. we just heard all about Google, but uh, Facebook have a very similar playbook, particularly in the US. But instead of calling it like a foundation or grant giving, they call it a feature, um, which is available only to publishers, and it's called Facebook News. You might be saying, you know, I've never heard of it. Us neither. Uh, no one's ever heard of Facebook News. It doesn't. <laughs> it doesn't pop up in your feed. It's very hard to find. <laughs> it's basically like, oh, we're selling. We're giving this feature to a uh, big media outlet. Um, to help them along, but it's a way of clandestinely giving a bunch of money, basically, to those big outlets. Um, it's not just uh, in the world of tech. There's also the Gates Foundation. So there's been a big story in the last um, six months or so. Uh, so there's an extract here from a really good piece that we'll, um, we'll link to by Tim Schwab in the Columbia Journalism Review. Uh, and so he says, I recently examined nearly 20,000 charitable grants the Gates Foundation has made through the end of June and found more than $250 million going towards journalism. Recipients included news operations like the BBC, NBC, Al Jazeera, ProPublica, National Journal, The Guardian, Univision, Medium, The Financial Times, The Atlantic, The Texas Tribune, Gannett, Washington Monthly, Le Monde, and the Center for Investigative Reporting. So these are some of the biggest hitters in the media space. Mm. The, the writer, uh, Tim Schwab, argues that this giving has, has really shifted the way that Bill Gates as a person is being framed in the media. It used to be 20 years ago, he was just a tech billionaire. And so he came under a lot of scrutiny, right? Uh, as a guy with a lot of money, running a big, important business, yeah. he was um, 
he was seen through that lens. But uh, since, you know, giving tons and tons of money to media outlets as they are kind of desperately trying not to go under, um, that has shifted. Now he's seen as a philanthropist, as a public intellectual. Uh, he's he's got a much broader kind of remit. These Weird. <laughs> uh, the list there just kind of reads like the uh, if if you've ever read like pulpy spy novels. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's like it sounds like a conspiracy. The list, of, the list of publications that like you 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 name check to show that you're a man of the world. <laughs> and, like, <laughs> and I wonder what he's using it as a front for. The only missing one was Der Spiegel in Germany, which is apparently like uh, you yeah. know that one yeah. always gets name checked for some reason. They anyway, don't have enough of an impact in. The- in the US, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, so same story with uh, Alex's uh, investigation of Google. It takes a lot of sleuthing <laughs> and investigation to figure out where all this money is going to and uh, for, for what right. reason. Like almost nothing is disclosed. I think only one of those media partnerships was publicly disclosed, and that was with Vox. Interestingly, a lot of that giving is also contingent on the type of coverage, right? So it's not like, oh, you have to do lots of nice articles about me, Bill Gates. But it is, um, <laughs> I now really care about the global health agenda. And so all this money I'm giving to you is so that you can set up a health um, you know, desk. You can hire a health editor. You can run a bunch of stories on global health, um, which yeah, has mm. meant that the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, which is now essentially the center of the global health sort of ecosystem, has become, you know, from from a very small start and a very recent start as is now the most public uh, public health organization that there is mm. out there. Um, the Gates Foundation mm. is like the, the biggest funder in the in the public health space in the global health uh, world. They have a pretty specific vision of like what the goals are and the, and the means are for doing global health and that is not to say that these are bad but it, it means that when you have a massive influence and an ability to set the narrative their agenda becomes the central agenda so uh, one of the things that he cites in this article is uh, one of its big goals is polio eradication and that's gotten a massive amount of coverage and obviously there's also a bunch of funding that they've gone alongside with that but what it was not on their agenda at all was for instance public health emergency preparedness you know <laughs> that's not that wasn't in the playbook of the gates foundation so that hadn't been in the news for you know 15 years yeah um and then we have this huge issue right so um mm. it's just like it's not not to say that everything that, that they're doing is bad or the things that they're pushing is bad but when you have this one actor that can have so much influence you can have a really distorting effect and you can miss things right mm. every every organization every individual is flawed and isn't able to just like comprehend everything that's going on in the world but uh, there's a little bit too much influence from one side here. You're suggesting a tech billionaire is flawed. Yeah, just maybe slightly <laughs> myopic. Um, <laughs> you mean to say that if if Bill Gates funds the Bill Gates Center for uh, Health Journalism at the uh, New York Times, that when he has a press release coming out, they might not, they might just publish it verbatim? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, basically. I mean, and th- there's been a big thing in recent weeks. I mean, the the biggest kind of news story in the world at the moment is that is the crisis in India, right? Uh, in yeah, uh, just just over a week ago at the time of uh, recording, Bill Gates publicly declared that we should not share vaccine knowledge or the technology for those vaccines. So basically, the things behind the patents that are held by those vaccine producers, we should not share those with India. Like he said that. A week ago, mm. if you look that up on Google News, like you won't 
find that really being covered. Not not sure uh, about I, that I, one, homie. Certainly not. Uh, <laughs> not from uh, yeah, many big I, kind of UK I, and US. I did it earlier, and I, I was I was genuinely shocked because there's a really good um, citations needed episode on this uh, at the moment. But um, I thought that you know that they're often quite uh, phlegmatic and they can maybe overstate things. But so I was like, I'm just going to look this up, like Google, Bill Gates, vaccination, India, and then look at the most recent news. The outlets mm-hmm, are mm-hmm. India Today, The Print. Voice of America, Observer, but not the Observer, IndiaTimes.com, and Business Insider. Like, this is a this is the maybe the mm, second most yeah. influential global health figure in the world behind the head of the WHO saying we shouldn't share uh, mm. the means right. to generate vaccines to a country un- like currently seeing just a- an explosion in preventable deaths and. This isn't headline news from every outlet. Yeah. Like it's a, it's kind of a crazy, a, a crazy thing. So th- this is what he was talking about actually in this article. Tim Schwab was saying like it's not a direct editorial edict, but you have a this kind of chilling effect, right? Where editorial teams will think twice before covering mm. something, and and sometimes that's all you need, right? Um, that extra check because that's where the money's coming from. Right. Of course. And and as you say, kind of culturally, these these teams and these editors develop a perception of Bill Gates as the good guy. That yeah, when you see something that kind of mm-hmm. really runs contrary to that, you yeah, you can't bring yourself, I suppose, to suddenly uh to kill your idol in a sense. Yeah, and again, this is to say this is not to say that everything the Gates Foundation has done on health has been bad. Like they've done tons of really good stuff and they really pushed mm-hmm. the agenda. But when you have a single actor who's able to essentially by friendliness from the major outlets in the world, you are going to get a myopic vision mm-hmm. of what needs to be done. Um, and you get oversights like this, like this is this yeah. is an inevitable outcome of that, right? And that's a lot of what Alex was talking about with Google as well mm. when it comes to, you know, he, he's a professional uh, tech journalist in Brussels looking at tech regulations. And so this is something that he sees as well. Quite recently in the UK, there's been more talk, I suppose, of lobbying um, because of the kind of Greensill scandal and David Cameron's, uh, the revelations around David Cameron texting and trying to have informal drinks with various ministers to support a mm. business interest of his own. It's the least, like, successful uh, attempt at massive corruption. Yeah, I mean, what it, like, it's quite embarrassing how bad he was at it. <laughs> I expected better from David Cameron in terms of organising, uh, like, under-the-table lobbying. Like, come on, I thought you guys just took them all out golfing or something and uh, but like texting people come on now <laughs> they should have asked tony blair he would have smashed it out of the park yeah <laughs> yes, like... i'll show you how to do this um a lot of listeners um you know you'd forgive them for thinking well why you know why does lobbying exist it must be purely kind of for the interests of the ultra wealthy particularly i suppose if you've grown up in the you know in the era that we have where it's just been all you ever hear about in terms of lobbying is kind of massive corporate um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. kind of regulatory capture or involvement in kind of big politics. Federal politics, obviously, in America gets slated massively all the time for this. Yeah, co- corruption um, by other means. Yeah, 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 that's yeah, what you normally sure. hear about lobbying. Exactly. And uh, it's, I suppose it's important to remember why like lobbying exists or is tolerated in some sense. Like it, it originally was and it can still be central to minority rights and representing good ideas in a democracy. Um, you know, I've worked with um, the civil service before and you can very often be kind of trapped in the ivory tower, so to speak. So it can be quite important to engage with kind of lobbyists, however you want to phrase it. Yeah. And it, and it's not just the private sector, right? Like, this. Yeah. 
the trade unions are also lobbyists, you know, uh, associations, activist groups, advocates, NGOs. I like side note, I am a professional lobbyist for an NGO. Exactly. Like, <laughs> there's a bunch of there's a bunch of people doing this. Rowan has 30 different golf club memberships. Yeah. <laughs> Rowan's hand is so shiny from all the handshakes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> completely hairless at this point. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and uh, and yeah, so I mean, it's easy to forget that, like, as well as kind of massive corporates, there are unions, there are you know Greenpeace and clean air organisations and um, children's charities and all that kind of stuff doing it. Um, problem is, is like to an extent, the norms and the rules of it were developed in an era before you had kind of trillion dollar transnational companies that rivaled the kind of scale, the thinking, the power of, it, you know, entire states and being able to kind of coordinate how their lobbying efforts work kind of worldwide. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's the, the stakes are also really significant today. We're talking about a globalized economy. We're talking about a globalized internet, globalized risks as well, like climate change. Um, you know, when these companies act, they can have things that are massive in a way that no one imagined kind of 100 years ago a company could influence. There was a 2010 paper looking at the US federal government by Brookings Institute, and they found that there were 16 lobbyists representing business for every one representing a union or a public interest group. Now, things might have changed since then, I'm not sure, in a better or or worse way. Um, But they also uh, noted in there kind of how significantly... um, small uh, a number of kind of congressmen's offices is in fact there are restrictions on how many uh, staff congressmen could have so to understand that a house of rep uh, a member of the house of representatives will represent on average about eight hundred thousand people and they'll have a staff of probably a maximum of kind of 16 uh people or 18 people i think it is mm-hmm. um in comparison, an MP in the UK will represent about an eighth of that, about almost 100,000 people. And they'll have a staff that uh, is about half the size of uh, a House representative. Sorry. And so what you get in a, in a lot of uh, public sector kind of spaces, and you get this also to an extent with the kind of civil service as well um, and SPAD, is that they're so understaffed. They're actually very happy to have whatever support they can get. And of course, when you end up with kind of lobbyists turning up, you end up with pressure groups, you end up with these kind of, you know, think tanks, all that kind of stuff turning up saying, hey, you know, we kind of uh, have your interests at heart. We align with your thinking. We see where you're coming from. Um, We can help you kind of develop this legislation. We can help you kind of, you know, inform you and guide you. We can do a bit of the work for you. That quite often happens as well. Um, you know, these uh, public sector organizations, civil servants, uh, ministers, all that kind of stuff end up saying, uh, yeah, sure. And you end up getting these lobbyists kind of really closely involved in like significant political decisions. And the reason I brought this into this conversation is it very much reflects what we're talking to there in the media in that when you have organizations that are suffering in the kind of modern world whether they're underfunded or whether things have kind of grown and pressures have grown but their funding or their staffing has not grown in in a similar way then people end up looking for money and taking it from wherever they want and you combine that with the kind of modern era of these you know multi-billionaires now it's not even multi-millionaires multi-billionaires where in an era where you might have had actually public sector kind of coordination of funding with maybe less strings attached or um, not kind of specific business interests about it. Nowadays, you've got these multi-billionaire philanthropists exercising the kind of soft power we just talked about with Bill Gates, but you'll see it, I'm sure, with 
a number of them and it pays off like amazon google facebook all spent about 15 million pounds each uh lobbying the u.s federal government in 2019 and you know similarly fair tax marks calculated that a lot of the kind of big six uh big tech companies silicon six as they're called mm-hmm. um they paid about 100 billion dollars less than they should have over the last decade in tax um, so, you know, uh, tens of millions here ends up saving them hundreds of billions. And also, you know, we discussed on this podcast a lot about the lack of kind of regulatory kind of interventions and oversight on these companies. That's not by accident. Like people have been talking about, you know, big tech and technology changing our lives, changing our societies. You're probably wondering why governments are only talking about stepping in now, like 15 years after these conversations first started having. Yeah. yeah. Like there's a reason for that. It's because big tech has been, you know, slowing in many ways or, you know, promising, don't worry, we're going to self-regulate. It's all going to be fine. (laughs) Or ministers kind of thinking it through and they'll send over loads of papers explaining how if you regulate us, the economy is going to collapse or all of these jobs are going to disappear all that kind of stuff, it really works. And you end up, yeah, like they know what they're doing. Like massive organizations have been at it. There are professional lobbyists who've been doing it for decades. Um, This is not, you know, they do it because it works. It really does work. Even when, to be fair, like a lot of civil servants, a lot of ministers might not even realize they're getting played. They might not even realize how much they're getting influenced by the favors that they're accepting, the funding that they're accepting. When you have vulnerable organizations, right? Like, so with the media, you have a, a an industry whose revenue model collapsed, mm. right? That's that's what happened. So a bunch of media organizations just went down with that revenue model. Some of them survived, scrapping by. Um, and there's sort of different ways that this has happened. Like, uh, you know, you have like the the BuzzFeed model. Who they've just, you know, this year they bought out a bunch of people from HuffPost and. Uh, immediately just fired like half the workforce um, <laughs> so that that's kind of like the VC startup version of this where they're like well th- these are huge assets right like they're big global names that people will trust and believe in mm-hmm. uh, who are now extremely vulnerable so like how can you exploit that you can do that in the kind of VC way or you can do it in this uh, foundational way where you go well we'll just give you a bunch of money so you can do more journalism that's great we love journalism <laughs> here's all this money so that you can set up uh, you know, a particular a particular desk to cover a bunch of stuff or to pay for a particular investigation. Like this is, this is awesome. We love when you do the journalism. Um, it's really hard to say no if you're that organization. And then, you know, the government is no different. <laughs> They've uh, had, what, even longer, right? 40 years instead of 20 years of being hollowed out from the inside <laughs> um, and, and cut after cut after cut and all of the senior people uh, being priced out of the job and all that, you know, over and over and over. In some ways, uh, you know, neoliberal states are even more vulnerable mm. to this kind of uh, influence from the outside, which is p- probably why we're seeing this explosion of corruption, although the British press are loath to use the word corruption. Uh, I notice it's sleaze and cronyism. It seems to be the uh, what we what you call it in the UK. Exactly. Whereas just taking money from people to do lobbying to your mates who are in government from you who is also in government... That is not corruption, apparently. apparently. D- direct, directly giving, uh, you know, government money. If this was to, happening in like an East yeah. African republic, you know, the foreign desk of major newspapers would be all over it if they had yeah. one, which they don't because they, they can't afford it, as we discussed. That's it. Corruption, <laughs> corruption only happens in certain kinds of countries, doesn't it? That's yeah. basically but, the... 
But that, that's the thing. These are vulnerable organizations and different people will prey on them in different ways, right? And so, and that's what we're saying. I just thought it was interesting because often when we talk about the media kind of hollowing out, we talk about, oh, the journalistic standards are going down because the editors all had to get fired or, because, or you know, we talk about local regional news, but we don't often talk about this like co-opting by the new funders about what is and isn't covered mm. or, uh, you know, where a particular slant on thing kind of, and, kind of lies. It's, it's really interesting. Um, and the, the problem is, is that these private companies, which largely kind of media organizations are, don't have the same rules on disclosures and limits as like even the public sector. And we talked about how the public sector has all sorts of problems. But like you were saying, it has you have to investigate it quite thoroughly to find anything. Um, and then uh, you can actually argue that, you know, these companies are the ones that in many ways are supposed to be holding uh, big, uh, big companies, big tech, uh, you know, or any other kind of large organization to account, uh, and our politics to account. And actually, if they are accepting funding from kind of foundations or from, uh, you know, um, organizations, uh, massive philanthropists, ex CEOs, whoever it is, um, can they really be holding people to account? Like in many ways, they deliver a, a public service. To be fair mentioned this uh, throughout the pod and it's kind of a bigger picture issue of how have we we've got to this point now where we're so reliant on uh the crumbs from the table of these like multi-billionaires or multi you know multi-trillion pound companies and multi-billionaire people mm -hmm. and we kind of praise the philanthropy of them or the you know uh, we're grateful for them dishing out hundreds of millions of pounds of funding and and support but then you have to think like what how, why are we at this point like, yeah. why is it that uh, it's not coming through, um, whether it's kind of citizens' pockets, if we had kind of more uh, to spend and it was coming through our own pockets towards these companies, or why is it not coming through like public sector grants? And, you know, there's questions around whether kind of government grants are a problem as well. Mm -hmm. um, but you can certainly kind of set them up to hopefully be done in a more independent way than necessarily kind of the BBC feeling a lot of pressure quite recently from, say, the Tories on uh, like funding and charters and stuff. But you know it it can't necessarily be a healthy situation for whether it's kind of government whether it's governments or these really important kind of media organizations thanking for the crumbs on the table really of these multi-billionaires it's it's worrying we shouldn't be in this position as alex mentioned there is like some things in the works to kind of start mm. hopefully trying to address this kind of these kind of issues so like he mentioned that the eu commission is looking into um you know possibly Possibly some actually quite typical for the EU, some actually like quite far ranging and potentially good uh, reforms in terms of in the in the field of digital advertising. Like, is there stuff that, like that that's happening closer to home? Mm. So we talked previously about some of the reforms around kind of online harm uh, and stuff like that. There's also work underway since what was called the Cairn Cross Review, um, looking at basically the issue of free independent press under threat because of changing business models, because of changing revenue streams. Uh, the Competitions and Markets Authority also did a review into digital advertising. These were all done like before COVID. Obviously, you can kind of understand to an extent things have slowed a little, but uh, we're still very much waiting for kind of, uh, we have been waiting for a serious announcement. A month ago, the UK government announced that a new regulator for digital markets was coming in but they're kind of at the early consultation stage. If we look at the online mm. harms regulation, that was at consultation stage back in 2016. We're expecting to see a regulator in place by about 2024. Mm. So, you know, these all of this stuff is good, 
but it's just coming extremely late in the day and it's very it's like there is a sense a little bit of kind of like the horse has bolted and we're trying to close the door it's gonna be very difficult to kind of tame these big tech companies um and of course there's so much damage that's been done like you can you can kind of introduce more competition or you can like fix some of the issues around the kind of hoarding revenue but is, as Rowan said, like thousands of me- small media organizations have already died and with it, all of their kind of corporate memory and their heritage and all that stuff. And it's going to be extremely difficult to rebuild it. And a bit of tweaking in terms of how kind of Facebook spreads its money around isn't going to fix all that. We're also very lucky that any of this is happening because uh, big tech recently has managed to piss off both political wings. So you actually have people on the political right in both the UK and the yeah. US pissed off with big tech because, you know, for people on the political right, they're seen as like, oh, they're all liberal elites. They're trying to push the kind of liberal agenda. Uh, mm. Pretty hysterical. And there's lots of evidence as to why some of this stuff isn't true. But uh, we are in a way lucky that that kind of narrative developed because it's actually encouraged what seems to have been kind of relentlessly mm-hmm. right wing governments in, in our countries to finally start thinking about like regulating big tech and these massive kind of too big to fail almost mm-hmm. uh, and too big to be threatened right, yeah. kind of companies. Yeah, I mean, I think the short term outlook on this is honestly quite bleak, like big tech as as usual is many years ahead of any kind of regulatory structure that will prevent it doing anything along these lines. All we can hope for, really, is that as, you know, public knowledge of their activities in these areas becomes more widely known, we might see more public pressure on politicians to do something about it. But the problem is, like, Mm. legacy print media still don't really have any idea how to make a decent revenue stream. And so what's the what's the alternative? We The state funds newspapers because media is good or they find some other way of doing it. And that other way of doing it is if Google come out with their checkbooks open, then, you know, they'll never say no kind of thing. There has to be a solution to it. For the last 20 years and throughout the kind of neoliberal era, the state has been desperately looking for all sorts of things that aren't taxation and that aren't just regulating something with teeth. And now after all of that kind of attempts at kind of self-regulation or nudging and that kind of thing, it seems to be that uh, governments are waking up to the fact that like, no, no, you've actually, you really do just have to like properly regulate things with a regulator. And like, you do have to tax and fund things. You know, you can't rely on like the philanthropy and goodwill of uh, kind of billionaires to keep uh, something like a free press alive. Um, Mm. Like, if anything, the last 30 years it has just proven like some of the old fashioned stuff really is just what's required to like make this stuff function. Like journalism as a utility sort of uh, sort of thing. Yeah. I, I think that's part of it. I think the other part of it is all this the pushback against big tech, like the antitrust stuff mm. and the attacks on it, which is the, the reason that uh, the media industry, which relied on advertising, it has collapsed to some extent, is that all of the advertising goes to three companies in the world. I mean, that's why, that's the simple thing. All in America as well. Yeah, yeah, it's, uh, you know, the three companies basically get all of the advertising spend. All of the people who relied on that before, it's very hard to invent a new business model. So, you know, perhaps they'll invent a new business model, perhaps we'll see more, you know, uh, state broadcasters, state newspapers, whatever, more subsidies from... uh, governments or from you know regional powers to, to pay for this stuff mm-hmm. um but ultimately 
until we break us the stranglehold on advertising money, I suspect um, you, you're just going to have a, a cycle of this kind of mm, stuff. Definitely. Yeah. So there's like a short term thing where it's like, well, we could probably, we should probably have some other funders <laughs> that aren't, yeah. have zero accountability um, mechanisms in the public eye, mm. right? At least, at least with the, with the government, you know, obviously they are also the, the story a lot of the mm. time, which is the issue with this funding, is that they're writing about Facebook being paid for by Facebook, and like that's probably going to mm. affect you. But um, we have no recourse uh, to demand that Facebook make the media treat them fairly. Whereas with the government, we do have some recourse yeah. on that. So that's why it's a slightly better issue. But in yeah, in the long term, it's really it's about the stranglehold on the revenue source. One thing um, one thing I'll also say is you can actually fund like journalism directly like there is a lot of journalists out there and and also publications whether it's you know big publications like the Guardian or um I know that like Casey Newton I sign up to his newsletter on Platformer and pay for it um there's loads of like good uh newsletters that are written by people like loads of like lots of journalists put their stuff up on Patreon like you can ultimately like journalism at its core there are people doing lots of work and like you can pay their wages in a way that isn't through advertising dollars and that will keep them going in the industry and continue delivering like quality journalism so um yeah one of the big things that you can do if you are kind of financially comfortable enough is to fund journalists directly and yeah. and journalistic outlets yourself plus uh you know it's just i think it's useful to just have this like context in mind when you're seeing a lot of this coverage because uh, it can explain what are the, some of the things that are missing or some of the ways mm. that some certain things are being framed. It's like, well, you know, maybe there's a money that maybe, maybe there's a money cause here. You know, it's just <laughs> yeah. an extra layer of discernment. I think is worth having for for people just yeah. as consumers of news. So um, this is why I thought this was really important study to talk about. Definitely. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think that's a decent place to end it. There, we'll be back in a few weeks with another episode. Thanks, you all for listening at home um and we'll obviously include links to uh, all of alex's work and the um articles that we mentioned in the podcast in the show description so check that out if you enjoyed the show you can support us on patreon uh, we are patreon.com slash connect and disaffected and thanks to all of our existing patrons we're trying to upload uh, extended interviews that kind of thing to our patreon feed so keep an eye out for that outside of that you can uh subscribe to us on soundcloud or on itunes uh, as I said, we'll be back in a few weeks, um, but that's it from us for now. So, uh, bye-bye. Cheers. Thanks. Bye, everyone. Bye.